I always feel kind of guilty ending these conversations that happen. It's better when we do it with music. I think we'll get back to that. That way I don't feel put on the spot. No, that's all right. That's all right. We are, uh, this is actually starting the beginning of our year. We, we have, uh, it's, it's still at the printers, it's coming this week hopefully, our new lectionaries. Uh, the, there is a digital copy available online where we go through the scripture over a four-year cycle. We're doing something a little different this first eight weeks. Um, we're stepping away. Typically, we would spend this whole time in Genesis up until Advent. Uh, we're going to come back to Genesis in November and, and get a little bit of it, but uh, for the first eight weeks we're doing, I think Jake referred to what we call social undistancing. Now, when I came up with that phrase, the numbers were coming down and not going up, so it's, it's a bit awkward to still use it, but we want to be, uh, the whole point is that we need to reconnect as a body. We've, we've been watching from afar for the past couple years, year and a half, and we want to reconnect in a real way. Relationships is one of our commitments and so what we're, what we're doing, we've laid this out, we're, we're going to spend the next eight weeks starting next Sunday focused on um, looking at our spiritual journeys. Uh, there's a book that we'll go through, I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, you don't have to read the book to be a participant, but we're going to do the sermon at, at 10, the service at 10, the worship service at 10, have a few minute break for coffee and some muffins or something, and then from 11.30 to 12.30, we'll have community groups spread throughout the church. I'll explain, you can sign up for those, uh, you can go to anyone you want. So you can pick your teams or whatever, make sure there's uh, people that you feel comfortable with to some degree in there. I would also recommend that you have a few people you don't feel comfortable with. That's part of the whole thing you're trying to connect, right? Um, but, but we're going to start today uh, this series looking at a very familiar psalm that, that helps us grasp this whole idea of our spiritual journey or what we're calling the series, The Journey of the Soul. Um, psalm 23. Have you ever heard Psalm 23? Heard that one before? Multiple times, right? I'm going to ask Dan Case if he'll come down and read it for us. One of the, the dangers of a psalm that you know so well is that we stop listening to it, right? We stop listening. And so it's really important for us to hear this psalm afresh today. Come on up, Dan. Mike's right there. Dan will read it for us, and then we'll continue. Morning, everyone. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks, Dan. Dan said, I think I could probably recite it from memory, but I'll probably bring my thing up with me just in case, which I think most of us would have done the same thing. Familiar psalm. How many of you, that was your first time hearing Psalm 23? Nobody, really? Okay, pretty much everybody has heard this psalm. It breaks down, I think, into three sections. And the first is, is what I'm calling the shepherd and what he provides. The shepherd and what he provides. It, it's, like I say, one of the most well-known of the psalms, but, but it's dangerous in that way because sometimes we just let it bounce off our heads. But let's, let's focus, slow down, try to hear it afresh 
today and be reminded of this nature of the spiritual journey that we're all taking. Okay? Uh-huh. David makes it clear right away in a pretty all-encompassing statement that what the shepherd provides is everything that I need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. It reflects the idea we had from that first Peter series, second Peter series, right? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, as we read the text, though, this is pretty clear that the shepherd gives me everything that I need. Peter says the same thing. But as we read it, I want us to read it from a place of honesty. You know, as a child, maybe you as a child, if you had a, a good growing up experience, it was, it, it was easy to believe that God would provide for all my needs, right? Of course he does, because my needs were all met. I had a home, I had parents that loved me, I had food, I had clothes, I, I had everything I would need. But as we grow up, you get a few more miles on the old odometer, or you, maybe another phrase, the water goes underneath the bridge, and, and now that I'm a little older, it, it, there, I've seen too many situations where it actually appears that people aren't getting all that they need. Anybody seen that? Right? Faithful Christ followers around the world suffering and being persecuted. Or, or painful situations right here close at home where people are just running out of emotional steam. They don't have what it takes, they feel. And it forces the question, really? Good shepherd, I, I shall not be in want. I will have everything that I need. Anybody ever feel that tension? <laughs> when we're honest with the text, I think we've all felt that. And, and I don't want to minimize the difficulties of saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Or as other translations have it, I have everything that I need. But I want you to see that when we confess that, it has to be a faith statement. It has to be something that we believe and trust even when we don't feel it. It's a statement of confessing belief in something that I can't always see. And part of our struggle about this is that we can't imagine not being right about what it is that we need. In that moment, we think, I know what I need, and I don't need this. Right? Or we think, I know what they need, and they don't need that. And, and it's hard for us. Have you noticed during this political election season, or maybe during this crisis with covid how people can be very convinced that they are right. Have you noticed that at all? There's a few little tensions out there where people are arguing and both sides are really convinced that they're right. We enter these discussions very often trying to convince the other of what we think we know to be true. Human be- Let me just say this. As human beings, we overestimate our correctness most of the time. N.T. Wright, who was a, he's a theologian, he was a professor for many years, and he would begin most of his courses by saying, half of what I'm going to teach you in this course is right, and half of it is wrong. The problem is I'm not sure which half is which. <laughs> so you're going to have to go to the Scripture and trust the Spirit to sort that out for you. And I think sometimes our problem is we assume we know what we need, and, and the point of making this faith statement is you're coming to it from a point of humility, saying, okay, God, I I don't always know what I need. I don't always know what's best for me. I've got some pretty strong opinions about that. I always know what I like, but I don't always know what I need. And the main challenge here is confessing this truth. If I follow Jesus, he will take care of me. He will. He will not fail in giving me 
what I need. And it's humility that enables us to make that statement. So the shepherd provides us, right, with everything that we need. This confession requires a, a humility, which I think is the doorway to this whole journey of the soul that we're talking about. Until you can humbly admit that you need something you don't have, it's hard to start the journey. Second thing that the shepherd provides is a space for growth. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Right? The imagery here shows care and nurturing. He leads into places of rest and nourishment, places where the waters are quiet, not rushing or dangerous. And that will provide the context and the resources for us to become what we need to be. As we follow, God will lead us into spaces where we will grow. Now, once again... This is not always easy. Green pastures and still waters sound great, but we're going to get to a valley in a few minutes that I'm going to talk about that doesn't feel like a place of growth. Right? And Hosea, back in Hosea, God says about Israel in Hosea 2, therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Sometimes the places that God sees as green pastures and still waters feel like a desert to us. But what he's going to do is lead us to a space where we can grow. How many of you can look back on difficult times in your life and realize God was actually leading you somewhere you needed to go, right? When I, when I first came to Canada, I've told you this story over and over, but it's true, so I'm going to tell it over and over again. One day you can fire me or I'll retire and you won't have to hear this story anymore. But when we first moved here, I, I had great visions of what I was going to do for God. I was a seminary student, and then for about five to eight years, I felt like I was doing nothing. And I kept saying, God, what is going on? What is going on? And it was a very, very dark and difficult time for me because I had these great aspirations. I wanted to, to serve God, and yet my day seemed so mundane, and my failures in my own life seemed so constant and recurring. But as I look back now, I realize that eight years was exactly what, what I needed to grow. It's exactly what began to prepare me for where I am today. I, I didn't feel that way in that moment. It didn't feel like green pastures and quiet waters, but it was a place of growth for me. It's what he was leading me to a place where I could stop being who I was and start growing into someone different, which is the goal the shepherd wants, and that's the third thing I would say he provides, is a restoration of wholeness. I love the first part of verse 3. He restores my soul. If you've had brokenness and pain in your soul, you know what I'm talking about then? When you just feel like, oh, I can't even face it. If, if you've felt that before, that phrase, he restores my soul, is a lifeline. It's a picture of healing what has been wounded, of mending what's been broken. See, the, the best understanding I have of the world, for me, the way I look at the world, is I, I see it as, as we were created whole in a relationship with God, and then we turned away, we rebelled against that, we decided we would rather lead our lives than to surrender to the Lord as our shepherd. And, it, and it's broken all of creation, right? It's brought pain and woundedness and brokenness everywhere we look. And what he says here is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you need. I'm going to take you to a place to grow, and I'm going to restore that wholeness. St. Augustine said of that feeling, you know, that feeling of brokenness. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Isn't that a great quote? You've made us for yourself. And what we decided, we're going to look for everything that we want to make ourselves feel, to make ourselves feel whole. But Augustine says, until, until we 
find our rest in you, we're never going to lose that restlessness. Paul was talking to the um, philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And he quotes some of their poets. And he says, talking about our relationship with God, for in him we live and move and have our being. What does that mean? In him we live and move. It means our, our whole person is tied up in who God is. As some of your own poets have said, Paul said, we are his offspring. And that's what Jesus wants for us. That's what the shepherd is leading us to. That restoration of wholeness by making us, again, one with God. A return to wholeness, to a settling of that restlessness that we all feel, that we all struggle to explain sometimes. I just don't, just doesn't feel right here. He restores my soul. So all these things, providing what we need, space to grow, wholeness, they all take time on this journey. And that's why I want to look at this, this next section. I think it's talking about the shepherd and where he leads in verses, the last part of three up through the beginning of five. If the Lord is our shepherd, where are we going? What can we expect? The psalmist describes the places that we're led to as we follow the shepherd. And like I say, it's not always, might, might not always be where you would choose to go. in the last part of verse 3. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, you've heard that a million times, and that's one of those phrases, paths of right. Whenever you hear the word righteousness, I think most of us are in danger of it just melting into some kind of theological cloud. Okay, I know it's, I think it's good, right? Sometimes as Christians, we think, okay, that, I'm declared righteous. Jesus has forgiven me, so my state, I'm righteous, even though I'm a sinner, I've been forgiven. It's a legal standing that I have before God. But this says he guides us into paths of righteousness. And I want us to think about what that looks like. In a real practical way, it says he leads us toward a life that looks right, a life that does right. There's an image that we read in the psalm today, Psalm 1, of the person who decides to follow God. In Psalm 1, it says he's like a tree planted by streams of water, water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. See, that's talking about this person who decides to follow in the paths of righteousness. It's not just a, okay, God has forgiven me, I'm righteous, like my my contract has been rewritten now. That's the way I used to think of it as I grew up, which was a helpful thing, right? I was was guilty, and then Jesus stamped, nope, forgiven. I'm righteous now, okay. Even though my life didn't echo that, I was righteous. Well, that's all true, but the point is where he's leading us is a life that looks different. I've said this over and over, especially through the last series. If your theology doesn't lead to reflecting Jesus and beginning to live and look more like he looked, then your theology needs some tweaking. You can know a lot of scripture. You can know a lot of theology. But if you're not loving and kind or at least growing in those categories, you have to wonder, is this really being led in paths of righteousness? I'll come back to this idea of the fruit that we bear in a minute. But, but verse 4 tells us of another place that we're led, often kicking and screaming, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. See, the shepherd and where he leads helps us to see the reality and the purpose of difficulty as well. He's leading us into this place, the valley of the shadow of death. And, and it helps us understand the reality that we are going to go to these places and also the purpose. When I was in Guatemala with my family, probably 12, 13 years ago, we climbed a volcano. The volcano was called Pacaya. 
And uh, we were at a language school, and it was an outing that they offered, and the teacher said, we were saying how hard a hike is, and we've got kids, some small, some older, and, and uh, we, we weren't, you know, we're, we're not these people that climb mountains all the time. So we asked him, what's it like? And he said, oh, it's, you know, the first 10, 15 minutes is pretty steep, but after that, it levels out, and it's just an easy hike. Okay, we can do that. We can handle 10 or 15 minutes. So we go, we get on the bus, we get there. Well, the first 10 or 15 minutes was just, like he said, really steep, and and we lost a few of our party on the way. I mean, we didn't lose them. They didn't die. They just decided they weren't going any further. And then we got to this place where it leveled out. It was great. And then we got to the next 10 or 15 minutes that were straight up. And we kept saying to the guide, hey, how, how much further? Like, it's supposed to level out. Are we done? The oh, just, well, you'll see the lava in just a minute. And then we walked the next 15 or 20 minutes. And the next 15 or 20 minutes. And literally, a couple, two and a half hours later, it was down to me and three kids, Maddie, Phoebe, and Caitlin. And let, let me show you a picture taken of two of them as we were going up the cliff. Have you got that picture, Rob? This is us. Okay? That's uh, Maddie in the front and Phoebe in the back, and Caitlin's right beside me as we take the picture, I think. And, and this was one of those places where you take two or three steps up and you take five or six steps back. And two or three steps up, and then you slide back down. It was by far the hardest hike I've ever done in my life. And I was terrified because I was going to lose my niece and my two daughters to the lava. I knew it. I just knew it because I was exhausted. I couldn't have saved them. And as we came back down, we saw the lava. It was really cool, totally worth it. But the four of us were the only ones that did it. As we came back down, uh, the guide was with us, who was our Spanish teacher. And my wife, who's very, at that time especially, was, was very good in both languages, explained to him, both in Spanish and in English, in case he didn't understand, that this was not what, what, we, were, what we were promised. And I, I just remember thinking, you know what? If he had just been honest about the journey, if he just said, it's hard, or if he just said the truth, which we learned later, the lava moves every day. They have no idea where we're going. We have to, they have to look at the lava flow and get us there. But he didn't tell us the truth. Well, here, <laughs> your shepherd, guess what he says? You're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's a part of being in the world. It's a reality. It's going to happen. He makes clear what is ahead. Do you remember that line from the Princess Bride? Do I have Princess Bride fans in here in the movie? Right? And Wesley says to Princess Buttercup, life is pain, Highness. Anyone that tells you different is trying to sell you something. The reality is we are going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are not going to join up with the shepherd and never have any suffering. It's going to happen. But he's not hiding that. James says the same thing in James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, it's, it's, this is one of those places that God provides for growth is the valley of the shadow of death. Difficulty, struggle, suffering. But if you notice, it's also the place where the whole perspective of the psalm changes. The whole perspective. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me in green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I'm talking about the Lord. But in the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? I will not fear, for you are with me. Do you get that? He's gone from talking about God as a concept, as someone who does stuff for him, to someone who is actually with him. It's, it's a deep and profound truth that when we struggle and we, when life is hard as it is, 
I don't, I don't think God's creating a hard life just to make us grow. I think we've broken the world, and so we live. We have a hard life. But that's the place where we cry out for help, where we realize we're not alone. The shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and that is the place where we cling to him. I can still remember as a little boy being scared sometimes and crawling up on my dad's lap or holding onto his leg or grabbing his hand. That's, that's the place. The valley of the shadow of death is a place of growth. It's where he leads us because that's when we actually connect with him. He leads us to joy in surprising locations. Look at the first part of verse 5. You prepare a table before me where? In the presence of my enemies. Two things to note here. First of all, this is not a place where you usually have a feast in the presence of your enemies. But God brings joy in these surprising locations if we'll have the humility to receive it and to notice it. God brings joy into difficulty. There's a, Habakkuk's one of my favorite Old Testament prophets, and he calls out, God, when are you going to do something? And God says to him, I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and they're going to wipe out the place. And Habakkuk says, well, let's try something that doesn't sound like a plan for me. I don't really like that one, right? And Habakkuk is going back and forth with God. And in the end, he finally realizes that he can trust. And there's Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. I'm sure you've heard these verses. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. See, that's... We've got to realize that this place of feasting, which is a, a symbol of joy, happens where we wouldn't expect it. Happens in, in the presence of our enemies. And the, the second thing about that is we tend to run from our enemies, don't we? When we see an enemy, we tend to go the other way. We tend to avoid people that are out to get us. And yet what, what the shepherd's doing is saying, hey, no, 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 sit down here. I've got a banquet. Do you get the idea here? It, it's... It's an opportunity not to run away from those who are your enemies or who disagree with you, but an opportunity to reconnect, an opportunity of hospitality, even with your enemies, a call toward reconciliation. But even with those that we struggle and disagree with, we, uh, many of you may not know this, but our ministerial, when COVID started, we started getting together once a week, and we pray. We pray for the town. We pray for each other. Uh, not everybody comes every week, but we, we just, those who come show up and we pray uh, every Thursday at 1. And it, it's neat because we, we all disagree. We all, I mean, they don't come to our church, right? I don't go to theirs. We all have theological disagreements, but we, we sit at this table and we pray for each other. And, it's, it's, and we pray for you. And one of the things that, that Father Tim from the Anglican Church said Sunday, he said, you know, somebody told me that, that the reaction to the pandemic and people's theories and the things you're thinking are actually breaking up friendships in town. And I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing that lots. And people are being divided and separated because they think differently. And people are leaving some churches because they don't think everybody agrees. People, everybody agreeing is never going to happen, ever. And, and what, what we see here is the shepherd leads us to this place where we can sit down and feast, even with those we think are against us, even to the point of we can invite them to be a part of it. We could open the door to hospitality. We far too easily put others in an enemy camp, and then we avoid them. We hang out with people who think just like we do, 
And we jump to conclusions about people who don't. And yet what, what God's doing is saying, here's a table. Wow, look at all this food you got. Think you can eat all that? No, I don't want There's way too much. Well, what about that guy? Well, I don't know if I want him to sit. Come on, bring him over. To me, that's the image we're having here, a table, a feast set in the presence of your enemies. And that kind of living, the person that in that moment would invite the one who disagrees, the one who's hurt them, the one who they've seen as an enemy, to, to be a part of some reconciliation. It's an example of what happens when we follow. Why do we follow? What are the results? It's a good part of the story. As we follow the shepherd where he leads and when he leads, we're transformed to actually look like him. It starts with an image that carries a beautiful insight. Verse five, the second part of verse 5, 5b, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. This idea of anointing was, was kind of symbolic of welcoming. When someone came on a long journey, you would anoint them, you would welcome them into your home. And this sheep is saying that the shepherd, whenever he's there, he welcomes the sheep to himself. And that, that oil also speaks of healing that flows to and through. The best understanding of our situation, as I said earlier, is that God made this world and it's, we've broken it. And we're broken too. And there's parts of us that are broken. There's parts of us that have been hurt, that have been rejected. And yet there's a healing that comes because we are welcomed by the shepherd. And that healing actually begins to transform us. That's why I say over and over, it's grace that keeps you from sinning. It's, it's knowing that God loves you in spite of your sin that will actually eventually turn you away from that because it's, he anoints my head with oil. He wants me here. He welcomes me. Why would I ever want to go anywhere else? When we follow, we are welcomed into the family and the baggage of the past is finally brought to this place of healing over time. And that flows to us and it also flows through us. My cup overflows. It spills out on everybody else. Reminds me of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Very often your, your suffering and the healing that comes through it is the very vehicle that God will use to bring healing to the world. A life of following brings healing to our brokenness, and through that it brings it to others, and our life becomes a life that bears fruit. First part of verse 6, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. There's a two-faceted picture here, goodness and love following me, right? Uh, There's two angles. One is that the grace of God, his goodness and his love will always be pursuing you, but the other is this, and I think this is the image that works for me the most. As I go throughout my life, I leave awake a trail of goodness and love if I'm following the shepherd. We know people, maybe we are people, that situations we enter into, we leave brokenness and hurt. Or we know people that have done that to us. It seems like everywhere they go, there's just a trail. And what what this is saying is if you will follow the shepherd, goodness and love will follow you. Everywhere you go, you'll leave a trail behind you. For those who follow, there is growth, there is welcome, there's healing. As a healing come, it flows to everybody. That's why, you know, he says in, in Galatians 5, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. That's what follows us when we lead the shepherd. 
that fruit. And day by day, then, we move into this third thing, a life with awareness of God's presence. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That, that can easily just become another religious phrase, right? We've heard it a million times, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I bet most of you could say that without even thinking. The Hebrew word for house there is literally house, but it's also temple. It's dwelling place. All the, all the meanings of that word center around this idea of presence. And what he's actually saying is, and, and as I follow, I will live in the presence of God for the rest of my life. Now, the question is, you have to ask, the same, that same psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You have to say, wait a second, I'm always in the presence of God. Exactly. The point is, most of the time, we're not aware of it. Most of the time, we're, we're, we're deaf to it. We're numb to it. But what he's saying is, 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 as I follow, I will grow in this awareness of the fact that every seven, single second of every day, God is with me and I am with him. A sense that I am not alone. See, the goal is to be led to this place where each moment of each day we are embracing our faith as a journey. Far too often our faith is seen as something that we know about. It's a theological understanding of God or of the Bible and, and I'm not demeaning that at all. I've, I've spent my life devoted to studying theology and the Bible. I think that's important. But we need to view faith as this journey that we walk in relationship with the shepherd. Every day we surrender to the leading of this shepherd, and as we follow, we are changed. How does that look? First of all, everything is oriented around the shepherd. If you read back through the psalm with me, line by line, just look how often God is referred to or the shepherd the Lord is my shepherd. That's verse 1. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then verse 4, you think, oh, I'm missing him a little bit. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Nope, there he is. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That entire psalm is oriented around the shepherd. That's the center point of the life. That's why an awareness of his presence is so important, because everything moves, everything that moves, everything that is, was meant to revolve around Jesus. He's the center of it all. That's the very nature of reality. Paul writes in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That awareness of his presence is so important because it gives us some cohesiveness to our world. He's, he's the thing that holds it together. He's the center point that helps make the world make sense, even when we don't get it. Or at least it's a place we can run to and trust when we don't understand. And flowing out of that, oriented around him, is this idea that following is active and participatory. There's movement in these psalms. You're going to green pastures. You're beside still waters. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It reminds us that this journey has both an inner dimension where we draw from God and his life, but also an outer dimension where we live and we interact. In Hebrews 12, 
writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off, witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Oriented on who? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. There's this active engagement with the world where we actually are living out the kingdom and letting people see what it looks like. That's why looking at what trails behind us, whether it's goodness and mercy or whether it's brokenness and pain, is important because you begin to realize, am I actually living in this way? Am I bearing this fruit? And sometimes it does mean being led to where we do not choose, where we might not choose. No one wants to line up to the valley of the shadow of death. No one wants to sign up for that. I'm, I'm going to encourage you in a minute to sign up for these groups. Some of you, you know, may be hesitant for that, but what if it said on the way out, sign up if you want to go to the valley of the shadow of death this week. How many of you would sign up? If, if you would, then let me talk with you after the service. <laughs> this is not something we want to do, right? But the truth is that sometimes it takes going close to death for areas of our old life to be pushed away and the new life to come. It's a great story. I won't tell it all. We'll, we'll skip the, verse, the next verse, Rob. But in Acts, at the, you remember when Paul was converted in Acts and he was blinded and he was led to a house and... and uh, then God says to this guy, Ananias, hey, there's a guy named Saul. He wants you to come and pray for him. And Ananias knows. Ananias says, God, you've got to be kidding me. He came here to kill us. He came here to kill all the believers. And God says, no, I want you to go. He's waiting for you. Now go. Ananias did not want to go. For him, that was the valley of the shadow of death. And, and we don't pick to go there. But the journey, I just want to be real honest. Once again, I'm, the, I'm leading you up the volcano. and I'm saying there's going to be parts of this trip that are hard but you will not be alone. You will, and that's why, we need, that's why we need a shepherd. That's why you, you can't go it alone. You need a shepherd. That's when you run to him very often when it is hard. And the good news is that both in our text today and in the stories of believers who've gone before us is that there are signposts along the way. And that's, this is starting, that sermon's kind of ended and commercial for our next eight weeks is starting. Is that okay? There are signposts along the way. There's, there's a book that, that I, I'm inviting people to read. There's about 10 more copies out there if you want to pick one up. Jake talked about that, called Journey of the Soul. Uh, what I've done is I've, I, I'm not a, I don't preach out of books. I preach out of the Bible. But what I've tried to do is take the major themes of this book over the next eight weeks and find texts that address those. And we're going to work through those because what, what it actually does is it shows you stages of the spiritual journey. It's, it's doing a better job than the volcano guy did for us. It's trying to tell you what to expect. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at these texts. We're going to see some stages. And, and I, I would encourage you, you can get the book, read it. If, you know, I, Let me just be blunt. I'm not saying this book will change your life. It's, it's an okay book. <laughs> it's not the one that, you, you know, this is going to, everything for your life will be different from there on out. But this book does have great information. I feel like if we can begin to talk about it together in the light of the text and learn how we're walking together as followers of Jesus, learn how we're following the shepherd and realize that the experience I'm going through right now, that they've had the same one. And God's put us together maybe so that we can give each other strength on this journey. And maybe this isn't your, your kind of, I don't know, I don't want to get in a group of people I don't necessarily know. I don't want to stay for an extra hour on a Sunday morning. Well, maybe this is God inviting you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And saying, you don't need to fear evil. My rod and my staff will comfort you. I may whack you on the head with it a time or two as well, just to wake you up and make sure you're... But I would encourage you, today, sign up for a group for starting next week. 
pick up a copy of the book or get it on Kindle and, and let's, let's walk through this journey together. Let's, let's, it's, it's a commitment to relationships that we have here at our church. That's how we're supposed to walk. That's what we need. In our individualistic North American culture, we don't always tend to that. We tend to be private. We tend to not ask for help. We tend to not be honest about our brokenness. And yet, part of following a shepherd is, is the sheep are walking along together and the shepherd's leading them. And that's what we want to do. We want to walk together and follow Jesus. One more thing about the book. The book is really linear. And what I mean by that is he's like, okay, there's this stage and there's this stage and there's this stage and there's this. And, and I, I hate that because you know what there is? There's this stage and there's this stage and then I might go back here for a while. And then I might hit what he calls the wall. And then I might, it, it's not... Uh, you know, sometimes you read a book like this, you think, if I could just check all those boxes, I'm there. I'm in the presence of the Lord forever and no problems ever. Mm-hmm. It's not that simple. But it's worth reading to help you think about, oh, I expect, yeah, oh, I remember that. Oh, I know. And then somebody that's passed, I can say, hey, this is what helped me when I was in that stage. I would encourage you to be a part as we join together and do this. Because you, you know what's funny? I think, this is my pandemic Okay, I'll call it my pandemic prophecy. Uh, but that's, that's a really loosely term there. I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a prophet. One of the gifts of the pandemic, I think, is we've all realized how much we need relationships. We've all realized how isolation makes us want to shrivel up and, str- and die. It's hard to be alone. Now, it doesn't mean it makes it easy for us to break out of that. But at least knowing that maybe we need something different has been a gift to us. Maybe it's God saying, look, guys, you've got to break those individualistic tendencies down. You've got to learn to embrace each other and to walk with easy people and difficult people and realize that the shepherd, I'm the Lord, I am your shepherd, and I will provide everything that you need if you will follow. Let's pray. God, thanks for this psalm. Um, it's so well known and yet so profound. And I just pray you would help us to follow you, that you would help us along each path of our lives, wherever we are, to be able to cling to you in joy and in difficulty, in times of fruitfulness and in times that seem like a desert, in times where we don't even know if we can believe anymore. I just pray that you would allow us to cling to you and to follow. And God, as we enter an eight-week span of trying to get to know each other a little bit again, and uh, trying to build each other up and encourage each other. I just pray that you will bless uh, the time that we spend uh, devoted to each other and devoted to you. Bring forth fruit in our lives. It's what we want here is lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I think about those guys, Peter, John, Matthew, the disciples, and it all started with them coming into contact with Jesus and him saying two words, follow me, follow me. They had no idea what was awaiting. And yet, you are fruit of what that accomplished today. Isn't that amazing? And, and the truth is, I love this song. Mark didn't even know I was preaching on the 23rd Psalm when he picked that closer, so that's perfect. Because if you say yes, today, tomorrow, every day, we, we will feast in the house of Zion. Right? We will, we will I forgot the words now. Sing with our hearts restored. We'll sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and we will weep no more. Amen? Amen. Okay, go and live that.